Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode as part of our Pearson podcast series. I'm your host, Andrew Walker, and we're pleased to present a Global Affairs Speaker Series episode, which saw the current Mary Victoria and Pearson alum Marion Alto speak to our community about her time at the college and give some advice to our graduating students. As always, we want to take this moment to acknowledge that our campus and podcast recordings take place on the traditional unceded territory of the Chianu First Nation. Without further ado, here is Mayor Alto. Thanks, everybody. Wow, these lights are bright, aren't they? Let me just step over here. There you go. Is it a terrible thing to say that I have items of clothing older than all of you? It's true. Uh, yes, I'm year two. I'm not even going to try and guess what year that was. But I'll put it in perspective in that when I first arrived, one of the first things that we did was have to finish roofing the houses. In those days, it wasn't metal. It was actually true. Uh, it wasn't metal. They were cedar shakes. And it was actually one of the most fun things we ever did. It really changed the way I think we related to one another and to the environment in which we find ourselves. And it's a pleasure for me to realize that you do take the time to do a land acknowledgement. And I would offer just one thought. When you offer your thanks to the Sheno people for their privilege and their generosity and their kindness in allowing you to live here and to learn here and to learn about one another here, don't forget to acknowledge the seas that are here. Sometimes in the city, we always begin every gathering with some type of an acknowledgement of the local nations. And for us, those are the Lekwungen people, the Songhees and uh, Esquimalt nations with whom we have very close relationships. We always try and acknowledge the lands in which the city sits in its entirety. Our entire city sits in someone else's living room. That's how we think about it. But we also acknowledge the oceans that surround us. Because even though we don't always have a day-to-day -day entertainment with that, uh, we do have to realize the fact that it changes the way we live on the lands. So I'd, I would urge you to think about that. I also urge everyone in our acknowledgments to take a moment each day, as you were asked earlier, and to try and find that personal thing that really makes a difference to you about the land and the oceans that affect you, and what it is that you'll take away with you whenever you go wherever you will go, to remind you of that privilege because it is something that becomes very personal after a while and should. So yeah, I came here a long time ago, a couple generations ago, and uh, it was an interesting experience for me because I had never been to school before, ever. And so when I applied to come here, it was through a very circuitous route that involved a lot of mail, actual mail with stamps and postage and paper, and letters that went back and forth from different countries uh, because I had spent my childhood traveling with my parents who had retired early from the armed forces and uh, literally camped their way through my life until I was 17. <clears throat> and so for me, it was a matter of writing letters to very vague places like Lester Pearson College, Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, and wondering if I'd ever get a response, and I did. And going through a whole series of applications like you did, but my application answers were all no, because I'd never done anything academic, and I'd never been involved in a community, and I'd never been a part of any organization or community association, and so I looked really like an anomaly. And despite all of that, they let me come. And I came from the province of Alberta, which at that time, the structure was that they sent a few people from each of the provinces. And I didn't realize at the time, but I learned many years later when I went back to talk to the selection committee that chose me, and the head of which was the actual, the dean of the law school at the time, that they sent me for a very specific reason. They sent me as a test because I had no academic background. I had no social community background. I had no volunteer experience. I had no political experience, no family experience, no money, no connections, nothing. And in that era, the test was, could someone like me make it through? And the answer was almost. 
I stayed for the two years, and I did a stupidly aggressive series of courses. I took all higher level sciences. Seriously. <laughs> now imagine a person who had never taken math, or biology, or physics, and yep, I came in and I went, hey, that sounds interesting, I'll do that. I didn't like English, I thought it was only good to read, so I took a lower level literature class. And I thought, you know, I should study a language that's going to be super useful. I know, I'll take Mandarin Chinese. That's really easy. And then lastly, because I don't know if they still do this, I can't remember, but in those days, when you were Canadian and you weren't a Francophone, you had to take a class in French in order to simulate the regular routine that everyone else had, which was you're studying in a second language. And so we had three choices. We could take math, we could take physics, or we could take philosophy. Now the clever person would take math. A slightly less clever person would take physics. Those of us who were idiots took philosophy, which had, of course, you know, tomes of reading that we had to do in a language we had no idea what it was like. So that's what I did. And so as you can imagine, not necessarily the smartest academic choices, and in reality, I didn't get an international baccalaureate. I did incredibly well in the sciences, weirdly, and reasonably well in everything else except one thing. I could not master Mandarin Chinese. I guess maybe I was a bit too ambitious. But that meant, though, technically, that although I stayed for two years and worked my tail off, I never got an IB. So I went away, and I worked for seven years at a variety of different jobs. My personal favorite, I drove a cab in Calgary for three years, made an amazing amount of money, wrote a book, had a fantastic time, met lots of great people. Went on and did a bunch of other things. I rode a bicycle from Calgary to Arizona, took six months. You know, did traveling all through a variety of different, uh, different countries. Did lots of different menial jobs. Eventually came back to Victoria, went to UVic. Got a lot of credit for all the stuff I did here, which is important to know. So I'd been out of school for seven years, and I walked into UVic, and they put me in third year biology. Again, not super clever, but there you go. Uh, and I went on to that and did a science degree, again, strangely, uh, in two years, and then went on to law school. I did spend some time in the legal profession, and I had one of those epiphany moments. And I, I have times in my life, and I think that you will too, when you have those epiphany moments where things just all fall together. And I had one of those when I was in Vancouver um, articling. And I had just been involved with a really great firm. And I had a beautiful apartment and beautiful clothes and a lovely car and a fantastic view of the North Shore Mountains. And I had designer coffee. And I stepped out of my balcony one day and I went, oh my God, I've become everything I never wanted to be. And so I walked to work, I gave two months notice and I left. And I left a job that was paying me at the time $195,000 a year. And I went to Victoria and I became the executive director of the Women's Center. And I made $18,000 a year. That was the best decision I've ever made. Because that led to, yeah. <laughs> that led to a whole new view of the world. And that led to here, to this moment. I believe that to be true. And much of that epiphany moment could be drawn back in lines to the epiphany moments that were here. Here, not in this building, because it didn't exist, but here in this campus. Because even though, from an academic perspective, I was unsuccessful, every single thing that followed, for me, was a success.
I met a woman that I'm still with. We've been married for 20 years. And we've known one another for 35. I have two children, one of whom was a graduate of Pearson. I have a life that is so full, it's hard to manage. And I'm the leader of the largest city in Vancouver Island in the capital of British Columbia. Much of those lines can be drawn back to the time that I spent here and that you will have spent here. Because all the things that happened in between are succeeding steps in a ladder. And it's not a ladder that goes like this. It's a ladder that goes like this, <laughs> all the way. So I've worked inside government. I was a political staffer for an NDP government. And I wear that moniker very proudly. I was a hack, political hack. It's a really important thing to do. You work behind the scenes. You get to influence lots of things. And in those five or six years, I was involved with some of the most momentous changes in British Columbia's history. In that time, I facilitated a year-long discussion that took the funding for HIV and AIDS not-for-profits from $570,000 to $17.5 million for the first time. In those days, I was involved with the decisions first to protect abortion clinics and to make sure that it was illegal for you to keep women from going in to get health services. In those days, we built the first of the rapid transit systems in the Lower Mainland. And in those days, we made sure that no matter where you were in the province, you had reasonable funding if you were poor. And all of those things happened by working in the political realm, inside government. And that happened because I was the executive director of the Women's Center. Because when I was that person, I went to volunteer in a political campaign for the person who became the health minister. And then as, as a joke one day, she said to me, you know, I'd be curious to know if you know these people I'm going to hire as my assistant. And I did. And I'd like your opinion. And I gave it. They were both great. And then facetiously, I said, if only I'd known you were hiring, I might have thrown my hat in the ring. That was on a Saturday night at a volunteer party where everyone was slightly inebriated, perhaps more than slightly. And the next morning, on Sunday morning at 8 o'clock, the phone rang. She goes, were you serious? I went, yep. And that was the job in. And that was because I was part of a community in Victoria of women and men whose sole job it was was to be feminists. And I used to say to people, my job, hey, I'm a feminist. I get paid. Not much, but I get paid. And they go, yeah, yeah, we know that. And I said, no, no, that's my job. My job is to be a feminist. My job is to fight for equality. My job is to educate people and to make sure that they know that they can change the world. And that has been the premise of everything I've ever done since. And I actually go to different organizations, most recently the United Way of Vancouver, and I talk to their volunteers and their staff about this one thing. Every chair you're sitting in, everywhere you will be, for every moment of your life, your job is to be one thing, an activist. Every single thing you do has to be about change for the better, because you have an obligation to be an activist. My two sons, who are the most privileged people on the planet, they are well-to-do, they are white, they are healthy, they are tall, they are the apex predators of hierarchy. And in exchange for that, they have heard from the first day of their existence that their obligation is to make the world a better place. And that's the only measure that they will ever see from anyone who loves them. And they've accepted that from the moment that they can speak, because that is the only truth that's worth measuring. And I go back to my journey, which started similarly to yours, a little bit differently since I didn't have the school part for most of you. And that was the acknowledgement that every time you take a turn, and every time you take a new decision, and every time you make a choice, 
The only measure you really have is how you're making a contribution. And I'm going to just end on one story. The city of Victoria, as long as I've been involved with it, and I was elected 12 years ago, <laughs> and just to the mayor's chair last fall, in the last 10 years has made a significant and deep commitment to creating relationships with the two nations. And we've created something that we think is quite unusual. We haven't been able to find it anywhere else in the world. We went to them initially with a very conventional idea. We're a municipality, we like to do things in an organized way, let's go make a task force. Okay, there's a whole bunch of these recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We'll get a task force. We'll do the ones that apply to cities. We went, we tried to sell us to the two nations chiefs. They sat with us for about three hours. You could literally see them patting us on the head. Good idea. Nice children, very paternalistic. And they essentially said, no, no, we're not gonna do that. That's your way. So we spent a year with them trying to figure out what we could do that would be more reflective of local custom and we created a family. And these two nations, their core decision-making bodies are families. There are five core families in the two nations. And they make the initial decisions, which then come to the community, which then come to the larger area, which then come to the regional chiefs, and that's their progress. And so we created a family, the city family. There are members from each nation, there are members from the city, and there are indigenous members who are themselves visitors from away. This group of people has been meeting, gathering, always over food, <laughs> always with ceremony, always with protocol, pretty regularly for about five years now. And they have been the heart and soul of the city's evolution in Indigenous relationship building. And the reason that I say this is because the journey that is described within that family is very much the journey that I think of as my own life and I think can be perhaps interesting to you. Everybody gets in a canoe. You always get in a canoe. Every story that involves moving in the indigenous community, you get in a canoe. We're all in the canoe together, and we're all paddling, and we're on a river. And we all know that eventually, every river meets an ocean. You're paddling along, you come to an eddy, you come to a whirlpool, you hit a branch, you hit a rock, you hit the bank. And every time you do, there's an obstacle. There's a problem. There's something you didn't expect, and it's something you have to solve and you have to solve it with just the resources you have in the canoe. And you do. And then you paddle out again and you keep going. And this keeps happening over and over and over again. And each time it happens, you grow, you learn, you share, your life changes in a way that was unexpected. One day you're gonna hit the ocean, but you don't know when. And hitting the ocean is not reconciliation. Being on the river is reconciliation. And I think of my journey as that. It's a journey to this moment in time. It's a journey which has been full of all sorts of wondrous things and some things that weren't so great. But it's the journey that's mine, just as your journey will be yours. If you would like to learn more about what we do at Pearson, visit our website at www.pearsoncollege.ca. You can also subscribe to Pearson E-News and keep an eye on our social media pages for the latest updates.